Steve asked a question a few weeks ago about men who have experienced the deeper grace life. I recommended a good book called They Found It. Uh, it is uh, stories of uh, great missionaries and great preachers who labored in the Lord for many years. D.L. Moody is in that book. Um, the gentleman in China Inland Missions, uh, yeah, he's in there. And so just some great men of God who labored in ministry for many years until they discovered the grace message, the message that it's all accomplished, finished, done, and it transformed not only their life but their ministry. I read to you a little excerpt from... Um, a gentleman named Evan H. Hopkins, he wrote years ago, The Law of Liberty in the Spiritual Life, an excellent book. Uh, he, was, he lived in 1800s, 1865. At 20 year, 28 years old, he came to Christ. Actually, uh, he was trained in the scientific realm as a chemist and uh, was, was a smart guy. But a Coast Guardsman who had gotten saved the day before shared the gospel with him and he was saved. Uh, he immediately entered the ministry, went to a divinity school in um, England, and actually was ordained a priest at the Church of England back, back in the 1800s. Uh, but along after he'd been ministering for a while, uh, he, um, he came in contact with uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Purcell Smith, who was an American Christian who had brought a group over to England to study the deeper truths, the grace truths, and he met up with Mr. Smith on Dorset Beach, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and spent some time in Bible study with him and came home that night to his wife, a transformed Christian, a man that had uh, just, and this is a description uh, of his wife, Mrs. Hopkins, in describing the disposition of her husband after coming home from that encounter with that Bible study group. She writes this, how, how well I recall his coming home, deeply moved by what he had heard and experienced. Now, by, keep in mind, he was a Christian, a preacher, studied in a divinity school, and was at, at present a victor in a, uh, a Church of England church. How deeply moved he had been by what he had heard and experienced. He told me that he was like one looking out on a land wide and beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. It was to be possessed. It was his. As he described it, I felt that he had received an overflowing blessing, far beyond anything that I knew. And it seemed as if a gulf had come between us. We sat up late that night talking with our Bibles before us. Oh, I was hungry, she writes. At last, quite simply, but very really, I took God at his word and accepted Christ as my indwelling Lord in life. And believe me, and believe that he did already enthrone himself on my heart. That was her experience as she saw the change in Evan Hopkins' life after seeing that the Christian life is not only begun by grace, it is finished by grace. It is completed, and no amount of effort takes us along the path. Now, before we read the verses that we're going to read tonight in Romans chapter 8, 
I tell you of a discussion question on our, our board and our class. I'm presently taking a few courses, and so the discussion question posed to the computer screen last week for the class was this, fascinating question. The teacher asked this, have you ever believed something without evidence? And if you have, how does that affect Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? His question presupposed that that verse taught that faith provided evidence. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. And it goes on and talks about that which we hope for uh, in the end. The verse does not say that faith provides evidence. Evidence is not the subject of the verb or subject of the verse. Faith is the subject. If the verse said faith provides us evidence, then evidence would be the subject of the verse, not faith. But it doesn't say that. It says clearly faith is the evidence, making faith the subject of the verse. And the evidence, faith itself. Now that's vital to understand and get before we ever read this here. Because Abraham was provided a city. He wandered in the wilderness looking for that city. He never possessed it in this life. But he possessed it by faith. Faith made something evidence to him. Faith was the very evidence of the thing itself. The attaining of the city that he was looking for in the New Jerusalem that he got after he died became his physical possession. But that city was his possession long before he physically possessed it. How? Because he believed God, and in that moment, it was his. That is the evidence of faith itself. We're going to read verses that seem ridiculous. I tell you how ridiculous it seems. Picture a Colosseum back in the Roman times. Picture it filled with lions, hungry, starving lions surrounding the Colosseum in the seats. Picture at that moment a group of plump, chubby little sheep wandering their way as a group in the midst of that Colosseum, holding a banner over their head that says, We are more than conquerors in Christ. Oh, really? Picture the scene. The lions would come out of those stage and have a heyday, and there'd be nothing but bones and blood. But that's the picture Scripture gives us, that we are like sheep for the slaughter, and we are in that more than conquerors. If you don't believe that by faith, it sounds incredibly ridiculous. It sounds foolish. But faith is evidence itself. It doesn't need the material possession of it. Okay, Romans chapter 8. Quite a, quite a long introduction. Romans chapter 8, and we scan our eyes all the way down to verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 31. Paul writes this. What shall we say to these things? Well, we're going to examine those things in specifics in a minute. 
But I want you to see the summation of all that Paul has written over the last three chapters. Actually, from the beginning of Romans. The beginning of Romans talks about the glory. Of the, let me take you on a real fast trip up to this point. Romans chapter 1 talks about the glorious gospel. And then it goes into three chapters talking about why mankind is lost without Christ. And then in chapters 4 and 5 it talks about faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse all those sins. You get chapter 5 verse 12 or so and all of a sudden the subject changes. Not from the sins that have been washed away, but the indwelling singular principle of sin within us contrast is the coke bottles versus the factory that makes it so god has not only washed away all of our sins but he has dealt sufficiently with the factory that produces those sins and we learn from chapters 5 6 7 that it is by the cross of jesus christ that we are crucified with him buried rose again that all that we were in the old us is gone and dead we are dead to sin Sin is still alive. Sin is still there. It is not eradicated. We have been separated from the cross of Jesus Christ. We get to chapter 7 and all of a sudden we're dead to the law, which tells us there is no more effort to live the Christian life. That effort in itself is a hindrance to the grace of God actually doing it. Look, either you'll live your Christian life or God will do it. He doesn't share. So it's a matter of being dead to the law. And then you get this big struggle in Romans 7. This big struggle about, oh, I try to do this and I can't do that. The things I want to do, I don't do. That's that indwelling sin principle within a Christian as he's trying to pull it off. And at the end, Paul comes to this great conclusion that, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. He's, we need deliverance from who we are in our old flesh. So we've learned all that. And then in Romans 8, we get into the Spirit of God has indwelt us. We learn now that there's absolutely no condemnation to those that are in Christ. None. Stop condemning yourself. And then it begins the operation of the Holy Spirit as he applies the life of Jesus Christ within us. This is a miraculous gospel. That kind of preface, preface chapter 8, verse 31, when it says, What then shall we say to these things? That's a general. But go back up with me to verse 29. This is kind of the specifics of the context. Chapter 8, verse 29. I'm just going to read through it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice the operation of God. For a long time, some 20 years as a Christian, I worried about how to make it all work and bring it all together and make God move in my life. And all the time, he had been moving and is moving, and I just needed to back up and watch him work. So notice what he's... Look at that. Those he foreknew, he predestined us to be conformed. to the, It's his job to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Let him do it. Let him do it. Believe these verses, and it goes on to say this. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, mature, growing, and those whom he predestined. Notice, he also called. He chose us, and then he called us. 
Now notice the next phrase. It seems out of order. And those whom he called, he also justified. I want to stop for a moment and tell you what's not between the calling and the justification. The, the, the steer tying, the roping, the dragging. He predestined us. He called us. But then all of a sudden it skips over any kind of coercion on his point to make us believe. It goes right to the justification. Uh, There are those who believe in a thing called irresistible grace. That when the calling comes and the grace is extended, that man cannot turn it down. It is irresistible. But that violates whosoever will may freely come. So you find between the calling and the justification, silence. Because that's our part to respond to the gospel. Amen? Now, once we've done that, and it's not mentioned because that's our part, the context is what God has been doing all along. So notice between the calling and the justification, there is no hog tying. There is no roping and dragging. There is no forcing going on. He calls, we respond, he justifies. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It means that God Almighty has declared us to be righteous. We come to Christ, he places us in Christ, and he says... Forgiven, righteous, in my son, done, finished. You have been declared righteous by the judge of all eternity. That's good stuff. That's the best stuff. No one can lift a finger against you because the God of the universe has declared justified. I don't have to work for that. I don't have to effort for that. That's given to me. It's my possession. We do do God more honor by claiming justified, redeemed, and glorying in Him than mill-billing about and and boo-hooing and and all this fake humility of, oh, what a sinner I am. Man, we are justified. We are redeemed. Notice he goes on, and he says this, And those whom whom he justified, notice the past tense, He also glorified. It is done. You are as good as walking on the streets of glory right now. You're done. Stick a fork in your Christian life. You are done. You are glorified. You see? It's done. This isn't things he's going to do. This is the thing that's already been done. So when you get down to verse 31, what shall we say to these things? We run and shout. That's what we say to these things. Notice, if God is for us, who can be against us? Actually, the can is not in the original Greek. Um, It it, it really, in fact, the is. If God, literally, the, the, the Greek reads this. If God for us, Who against us? That's what it says. It's not formed in the idea of who can be against us, like we logically think through the process of that. Well, if he's for us, who can be against us? This isn't a logical argument. This is a challenge to all the universe. This is a challenge to every foe. If God for us, who against us? Come on! That's what it is. It's walking into the boxing ring going, come on! 
That's what I say to my grandsons when they show up at the house. Come on! Show me what you got. If God's for us, who against us? Wow, that's a challenge. Face that, man up against that. Notice he goes on. He who did not spare his own son. Notice the beautiful picture of the father offering his son up on the cross of Calvary. Not that the two had an argument and Jesus said, I'll just go do it anyway. The father loves and the father has sacrificed. And the father, Isaiah says an amazing thing when it says, and it pleased the father to offer the son. Wow. Notice he that didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Don't you love that? The us is the believers in Jesus Christ. The all is every one of us. In his economy, and his flock, there are no minor sheep and major sheep. There are not. I know we esteem men like Billy Graham and, and Moody and all the greats of the faith. We esteem them, but really God doesn't. He esteems the least among us as much as the great among us that we think. He offered him up for every one of us. You get that? You see that? It happened a long time ago. It happened 2,000 years ago. It is as fresh as the blood dripping off the cross in the present moment that we live. He offered himself, he offered his son for us. Notice, how, sh how will he not also with him, now that he lives, graciously give us all things? What do all things mean? They mean all things. Wow. We have all eternity to enjoy the all things that God will give us and give us and give us. It'll be like Christmas morning multiplied a billion times every day. Overwhelmed. Our brains cannot wrap themselves around all that God desires to give us and does give us and will give us. Notice there's no human merit here. You know, notice there's no thing we have to do to make this all happen. Notice this is all, the only thing that stops you is you not believing that you have all things. See? Faith is the evidence. Notice verse 34. Who is to, con well, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge or any charge against God's elect? Isn't that a beautiful word? Elect. I like that. God's chosen ones. I know it's mighty Calvinistic, but it's, it's there, and I like it. We are God's elect. Who's going to bring a charge against you and I, Tony? Who's going to point their finger in our faces and say anything? No one. God chose you and I. Notice... It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Isn't that beautiful? He died, he was buried, he rose again, and right now he is active 
at the right hand of God, praying for us, interceding for us, talking to the Father about our lives, talking about His work in our lives. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, all engaged, all engaged in our salvation. What a magnificent salvation. What a joy of His work in our lives. Notice it goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice not just Christ Himself, but the very love that Christ has for you. Who can separate you? And then he has a list. Shall tribulation, struggles of this life, the hardships that come to us because we know Christ. Notice shall distress. The Greek word means to be boxed into a corner. It means to be pressed down and feel like life is pressing in on you. Usually bad things happen in threes, do they not? Boom, boom, and then you're just waiting for the last boom to box you in a little more. Shall distress separate you from the love of Christ? Again, remember, this is all by faith, but faith is our reality. Faith is real. Faith brings the substance of the life of Jesus Christ in the most distressing, tribulating times of life and you just simply smile, chuckle, and keep moving on. Do you understand the, the victory, the Bible says, is our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. You have the most tragic, pers- the most tragic event that can happen to you. And in the end, you cry out, God is love. That person has gotten a hold of something that the average person does not know these truths it goes on in the list distress persecution famine nakedness danger the sword Mm, doesn't sound like a Joel Olstein message to me does it you these are the things of the believer of Jesus Christ in this world we are outcasts we are vagabonds we are the despised of this world Now, I I don't mind material blessings. I hope God blesses all of you materially. But look at the lives of the apostles. Look at the lives of the early church. When they came to Christ, they had lands taken away from them, property taken away from them, lost their businesses, lost their heads. The gospel is not popular in this world, and these are the things that God allows us to go through. Nakedness, famine, Pain, heartache, don't be surprised. Count it all joy. That's a different message, isn't it? It's not warm and fuzzy, but isn't it real? It's the real deal. God in the midst of that shines through. Notice, as it is written, this is out of Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake, notice, it is for His sake. For the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, we are killed all the day long. Killed in the minds of people. Killed in the opinions of people. Killed all the way through. Pitiful, sorry, stupid Christians in this world. Missing out on all the world offers. How foolish to waste your life 
on the cross of Jesus. How foolish to waste your life on the gospel. How foolish to waste your life coming to church this often. What else you got out of there? The Jaguars losing today? Is that it? Is that it? They had to open the counseling sessions all over Jacksonville for the, for the wife beaters. You know, what joy is that? We're talking about a kingdom and a world and a savior that's alive and real. But they kill us all the day long, don't they? Lift that blade to our neck and we just smile at you. Come into a coliseum of lions and we just hold that banner high. Notice it says, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37 says, no. The old King James is nay. In all these things, notice, in the midst of famine and pain and suffering and persecution, not by the absence of them, but in the very midst of suffering as Christians. In the midst of all of that, notice, we are more. The Greek is super conqueror, abundant conqueror. We are more than a conqueror through him and Christ, through Christ. Notice through Christ. Now without faith, this doesn't make sense. Without faith, we get a bad lot in life. But do you see how this transforms your entire mentality? Notice, in all these things, we are more than conquer through him who, notice it does not say loves us. Through him who loved us. You will find very little verses that talks about Jesus loving you or God loving you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. It's always past tense. Because the love that Jesus Christ has throughout the scripture and the love of God, watch this, is all pointed back to the cross of Jesus Christ. He loved you when he died for you. That is the expression of the love of God. Yes, it's progressive. Yes, he does love you in the present moment. But all that love is based on a rugged cross where he spread his arms wide and the blood poured and he sacrificed his life. There the heart of the love of God was bore open for this world. You see it. Always it's in the past tense because it always points us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. If we get into this mentality of saying that God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, we have no basis to say that on. We have no point of reference. But if we say that God loved you, we go back to the point of reference of the cross. And therein is the real love displayed in his redeeming you. All right, let's, let's finish the verses. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, the King James is, for I am persuaded. This is a persuasion not so much of the mind, but of the heart. This is the persuasion of Scripture and of faith in God and of understanding these things as the Holy Spirit reveals to you. This is a persuasion you don't figure out. This is the work of God impressed upon your soul over a matter of years as you have faith and you grow in grace and you grow in grace and all of a sudden there comes that moment where you're so fully persuaded 
that no amount of evidence on the other side will ever shake you. No amount of lack of evidence will ever shake you. You're like that old pit bull with a towel in his mouth. And you grab that towel and you shake it left and you shake it right and you can't get that thing out of them jaws. That's the persuasion word here. For I am sure. When you become so sure of the promises of God, when you become so sure that you're a conqueror in Jesus Christ, you will walk into that coliseum of pit bulls and lions and you'll smile in their faces and you'll say, basically, you can't touch this. You can't hurt me. You may kill me. You may cut my head off. You may persecute you. But, but you may talk bad about me. That's about as bad as we get in America. You may, you may slander me. You may call me names. You may say I'm a liar and a fake. Do all that you want. I'm more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Now, I know we all suffer at times, and I know we have persecutions and difficulties and struggles, and I know that. But do not fold under the mentality of this. Oh, woe is me, I can barely make it through this life. That is dishonoring to God. This verse says we are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Either this word is true, either this verse makes sense, or I'm going to waller under self-pity that I can barely get by. Hold the fort till Jesus comes. I find in the Bible we're, we're charging the gates of hell with the gospel. Different mentality. We are more. This is, we are, not that we will be, we are right now. Notice it says, for I am sure. Notice it's not life and death, it's neither death nor life. Death comes first. That's the greatest fear of the lost man, is he's going to die. Death, the fear of it, is removed the moment he gets saved. We have no fear of death. Notice, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, whether Paul references the, the elect up in heaven or the fallen ones, we don't know. It just says angels or rulers. I'm not sure if that means a president or... Probably has reference to spiritual rulers in dark places. Probably has reference to demonic activity it's said that when Daniel needed some strength from the Lord that Michael the archangel battled the demon of Babylon for a while before he could get through to him so there's demonic kind of rulership going on but none of that stuff scares me Sometimes Christians are terrified of demons and the spiritual world and stuff they don't know. You know, there's somebody hiding behind every oak tree, you know, jump out and grab them. We have no fear, Helen. We have no fear. We don't fear Satan. We don't fear the demons. We fear none of that because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have no fear of that. Hocus pocus. Notice nor things going on around us right now. I love that. What's going on around us right now? The collapse of the world system as we know it. That's what's going on. She's a nine and a half month pregnant woman who's dying to give birth and she's a screaming loud, isn't she? The end of this world is coming quickly. 
Now, that's not the cry of the preachers. That's the lost secular crowd screaming there's something going on in this world. They know something's coming. It's actually called the Antichrist who's coming. So we're not, uh, nothing, nothing that can happen now can separate us. Notice, notice nothing of, of things that come, nor powers. The word powers has the idea of magic. You ask, is, this, is the evil spirit world? Yes, it is. It's very real. But none of that separates us, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, has the ability to separate us, to sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. An incredible. What promises... What truth? And we have no physical evidence for any of it. But when you believe that, it becomes the evidence itself. And you become the possessor of a city that you've never entered and of a life that you already have.